Good morning. Thank you for being here. And as we continue in the Advent season, we're talking about peace today. And what does that word mean? When you hear that word peace, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to have peace on earth? It's interesting. Moody Institute did a survey, or actually a historical research, and they found out there's only been 287 years of peace in the last 3,500 years. That means most of history that as we know it, there are wars going on where there's a lack of at least world peace. But what does that word peace mean biblically? What does the Bible mean when it talks about peace? What does Jesus mean in John chapter 14 when he said, peace I leave you, peace I give you, not as the world gives you? What is he talking about? Well, let's start here with a very famous theologian that you might be familiar with called Charles Schultz. Let's look at that right now. Here's Lucy and Linus. Boy, look at it. Look at it rain. What if, what if it floods the world? What if the whole world floods? It will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that he would never, that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. You've taken a great load off my mind, says Lucy. Linus, sound theology has a way of doing just that. And I think if we theologically understand peace correctly in biblical terms, it can bring us much hope and understanding. You see, in the Bible, there are at least two types of hope. The first type of hope is called judicial hope. Judicial hope, that means that we are at peace between God, or we're at peace with God. It's that judicial nature, and it comes from the understanding that God is the holy creator and judge of the universe. And we are sinful human beings whom each of us has chosen to go our own way, to live our own life, to be in control of our own lives. And God says, I am the king, I am the one upon the throne, and we say, no, I am. And so we are at enmity, the Bible says, with God. But when we come to that place where we recognize he is God, I am a sinner, and I need his forgiveness, I need his grace to cover me, we confess that before him. And because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when God sees us, he sees us as covered. He sees Jesus' righteousness, and we're covered. And from that point on, we are at peace with God. We don't have to worry what happens when we die. We don't have to worry how God feels about us. If God out to get us, what does God think? We are at peace with God. God is for us. We are judicially at peace with God. So often we'll read scriptures uh, that maybe relate to the judicial peace that we can have with God through salvation in Jesus Christ. But then there's another type of peace. It's called experiential peace. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Once we have peace with God, once we have received his grace and forgiveness, we are at peace with him from a salvation standpoint. But that doesn't mean that within we're always at peace. And we know that there's an enemy who seeks to destroy us. Literally, the scripture we'll look at today says to devour us, to rob us of peace. And so we're going to talk exactly about that today. Now, I mentioned to you there are two types of peace, and there's a passage of Scripture we're going to briefly look at uh, that deals with the judicial peace. So we're just going to spend one minute at it. But I, uh, the children, matter of fact, quoted this verse a while ago. If you would turn, if, if you have your Bible, you can, or if you can just follow on the screen. The, excuse me, in the Old Testament, there's a book called Micah. Micah was a prophet about a little over 600 years before the time of Christ. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Bible says this, and this 
first one is talking about the first advent, the first coming of Christ. When we talk about advent, typically we're talking about the first coming of Christ, but there's a second advent as well, and it's when Christ will come again. This first verse, which is a very prophetic verse, it says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel, who is coming forth from old, from ancient days. In other words, he's already existent. What's interesting about this, first of all, I've mentioned this before. I try to mention this every Christmas. There are two Bethlehems. There was the Bethlehem Ephratah, and it's specified here. It's at, that's a remarkable scripture. That's a remarkable prophecy that over 600 years later that it's forecasted that this is what would happen from Bethlehem. Recognize there's two Bethlehems. From Bethlehem Ephratah, which, by the way, was a very small community at the time. I, I've been there. My wife and I had a chance to go to the Holy Land, and um, we visited there. And, and Bethlehem's a little bit bigger city now, certainly. But back then, it was a very, very small village outside of Jerusalem. And scholars uh, estimate it was somewhere between 200 and maybe 400 people, about the size of the community I grew up in in Louisiana. I grew up in Slega, Louisiana. How many of you are familiar with that? I, I'm very shocked that somebody knows where that is, okay? Um, and there's one cage in here that we let in. But nevertheless... Uh, yeah, it's a community of 300 people. All we, ha- we, we don't have a light. We, we have a, a store and, and with a post office in it and two Baptist churches. That's what we got, okay? So people aren't familiar with that. So if there was a prophecy 600 years before that somebody had come out of Slagle and be the president of the United States, that would be quite remarkable. But this is even a bigger deal, obviously, because it's talking about Christ. So we see the first advent. This is a prophecy that the first advent would occur And it is given to us here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Then, remember, Micah is seeing a vision. He's getting a vision from God. And now he prophesies about the second advent, when Christ will come and rule. And it starts in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until a time when when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and the shepherd in his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord God. And they shall dwell in the secure for now shall be great to the ends of earth and he shall be their peace. Talking about the second advent. All right, so we see this judicial peace that God's talking about that's ultimately going to prevail upon the earth. But now let's talk about a little bit about experiential peace. Now, um, when we're talking about peace biblically, it's important to us to understand that primarily uh, when the Bible is talking about peace, it's talking about shalom. Shalom is a, it's such a rich word, we could never completely grasp or understand it in our language. Uh, but the best way for you to probably understand it is this. When things are as God meant for them to be. When things are as God meant for them to be. When he created the earth and he created the garden, he created Adam and Eve, it was as life should be. When we are walking in fellowship and in spirit and obedience with Christ and we're following his principles and precepts, It is as life is supposed to be, and we experience the shalom, the favor, the blessing, the fullness of God Almighty. But let me tell you what the opposite of the word shalom is. The opposite of the word shalom is sin. Sin is when things are not as God intended for them to be. Shalom, this is the way God created the earth. This is the way God created mankind. This is how he desires for for us to operate and to work and to live. Sin 
It's the antithesis. It's the opposite of how God intended. And that's how we get sin. It's operating or living in a manner contrary to the manner in which God created us and expects us to live. So shalom, the life God has intended, sin, the opposite. With that understanding, how do we deal with it? How do we overcome this war on peace and live in the shalom of God? Well, first of all, we believe the gospel. We believe the gospel to be true, that the perfect and holy God of the universe has made a way for us to know him through the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh came to this earth, and he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. And when we put our trust and hope in him, we are forgiven. His blood is applied to our account. We are seen as righteous by God Almighty, and that's the power of the gospel. And we take that, we live that, we believe it, and we insert it into our lives. And secondly, as we think about that, Jesus made a phrase. And I'm going to share with you in just a moment. I've shared this multiple times before. But he said something more than he said anything else. And understanding this, I think, helps us if we notice this, that there are two types of relationships in the world today. There's two types of relationships that you have with people. The first one is this. It's consuming. In other words, you have relationships with someone based on what they can give you and what they can do for you. That's what it's centered around. And many relationships are like that. I would dare say most relationships are like that. It's not the way God intended, but it's the way that we live. I want something, I need something, therefore I will help you as long as I get what I want and I get what I need. And at any point that doesn't happen, then I'll be done. But there's another way to live. It's the way Jesus intended for us to live, and it's by giving. In other words, I choose to love and to give. I choose to serve. I will serve you, not based on what I get, but because God has called me to do so, because I love you. It's like a mother to a child. It's not what the child gives them. They've chosen to serve and to love. So relationships are either built on consuming or on serving, upon giving. Let me help you with this analogy. I shared this yesterday at a service here uh, and uh, as an illustration. When I was growing up, I had two favorite games, two games that I loved to play as a kid. The first one was Monopoly. And you know how Monopoly works. In case you don't, basically you start off with a little money and it's your goal in life to get as much money and as many homes as you can and drive the other people into bankruptcy. That's what you're trying to do. Get everything you can get and then buy up everybody else's stuff and just put them out of the game where they can't do anything. And they lose. They, they leave with nothing. You leave with everything. That's the goal. Or till you just get tired of doing it. You know what I mean? Which I usually got tired first. But there was another game that I learned later that I really, really loved. It was the opposite of Monopoly. It's called Uno. I loved Uno. Played Uno, and the objective of Uno is not to try to get. It's trying to give it away. You try to give every card you have away, and when you've given everything away, you win. It's the exact opposite. Our culture, our world, is a monopoly-driven culture. The more I can get, the better for me. I need more stuff. I need another house. I need more stuff, more money. And it's almost like if we're not careful, we become like a teller of the hunt. It's not enough that I have more. You must have less. <laughs> but Jesus said, 
this phrase, this passage, this quote five times in the Gospels. More than any other, more than any other phrase, more than any other verse, more than any other quote we have from the Bible. Jesus said this five different times. He who seeks to save, to consume his life, will lose it. But he who gives his life away for my sake shall find it. He who consumes loses. He who gives finds life. Jesus was already saying, Jesus saying, he who plays Monopoly with his life loses purpose. He doesn't have peace. He doesn't know the hope. But he who plays Uno with his life finds life. I ask you today, are you an Uno person or a Monopoly person? If I asked your family, which game would he choose to play? What game identifies his life? What would the people at work say? We have to believe in the power of Christ. Because Satan has a different message. He has the monopoly message. And you know what the word Satan literally means? Prosecutor, adversary, lawyer. Um, I'm not joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm looking at a lawyer when I said that. That's right. I said that. She's the sweetest lawyer I've ever known. Prosecutor. One who begins to say, he's not real. You believe all that? You can never do any better. Why would he forgive you if they knew your past? Do you really buy all this stuff? And he begins to come as the adversary, the prosecutor. And he can't do anything about your judicial peace if you know Christ, but your experiential peace, well, that's a different story. And I think if we understand and we see the tactics of the enemy, then we'll be better prepared to handle them. So, if you would, let's look at Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to read the whole text, and then we'll summarize here in just a moment. The whole text, Paul is speaking here, and he's talking, and he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here it is. Here's the uno type of love. Remember he said, but through love serve one another. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour, here's what Satan wants us to do to ourselves, mentally, and to others. Since he can't rob us of our judicial peace, he wants us to be robbed of our experiential peace. And he wants to rob others, and he primarily does that through others. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you be not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. We'll talk about that in just a moment. This is part of Satan's devices, this sensual, sensual nature, this uh, sensual desire, lust of the flesh, idolatry, which is uh, what we call lust of the eyes, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Why do we have fits of angers and dissensions and divisions? Because of our desire to be in control. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You won't understand or experience the peace of the gospel here on earth. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And we're going to look at what that means. Let us not become, here's those words again, conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. I think we need to recognize that, first of all, that Satan's goal is to get us to bite and devour one another, particularly as believers, to devour ourselves, to devour others, and not even recognize we're doing it. His lure is this, and uh, we don't have time to turn to it, but if you want to look at 1 John chapter 2, you would see those three lusts that are listed there. And that's what I believe Paul is making reference to in the passage that we read here in Galatians. First of all, there's what we call the lust of the flesh. It's the sensual. Uh, And Paul talks, talks about that as we were reading through Galatians 5 just then. And Satan lures us through the sensual, through the physical, through pornography, through that image conscious, through what stimulates our flesh. And he does that to a lot of believers. And he begins to capture them. And, he, and if you find yourself in that addiction, it robs you of peace within. It's coming directly from the evil one. He appeals to that lust of the flesh. We have groups here to help you. If that's something you're struggling with, and we would love to help you with that process. But know that that's one of the number one ways in our culture today, particularly for men, but even women today, are, are lured away by the lust of the flesh, by the sensual The second way that Satan robs us of our peace is through the lust of the eyes. Now, the word idolatry can be associated with that, and you might be thinking, well, I sure am not an idol worshiper. I don't worship idols. I don't put things up and worship those those idols. That's, That's not what I do. But idolatry comes in many forms, and the primary form it comes for us today is in materialism, in possessions, in having stuff. If I can't have that house... I don't know that I'm ever going to be happy. If I can't, oh, I just need those clothes. If I could just get those clothes. If I could just afford this. If I could just get a pool. If I could just get this. If I could just go on this trip. And we start to live as, I can't be happy unless I get this stuff. Unless I get this image. It's the lust of the eyes. Paul talks about this in um, Romans chapter 7. He talks about how he did so well within the law until he got to the 10th commandment which was thou shalt not covet. And he realized, boy, it was hard not to covet, not to covet what other people have. You know how, how you really know if you're an idol worshiper? This is how you know. If you get around somebody else who has the stuff that you want and it bothers you. They have that house. Oh, I just, I'm just, I can't even walk in there. It bothers me so much. They're driving that car. I, I can't even look at that. It just bothers me so much because I want that car. That's the car I want. That's kind of become your idol. You're saying, I can't be at peace unless I have this. And Satan is luring you. Third way. I call it the lust of superiority. Uh, It's the lust of control. Paul talks about this. The the conceit, the pride, the the pride of the heart is how it's sometimes referred maybe in your translation in uh, 1 John chapter 2. The pride of the heart, the lust for superior order, for control. I want to be in power. I want to be in control. Unless I'm in control of this relationship, it's not going to work. Unless I'm in control of this aspect of my life, unless I can be in control, I'm just not going to be at peace. And Satan tells you that. 
You can do it better. Unless you're in control, don't quit. Bite, devour, speak out against. And that's what we do. Remember how we started? Bite and devour. Oh, why do they have that and I don't? And maybe unconsciously we start to think of ways to tear them down and to say things that will humble them. Or we think, I'm not in control and somebody's keeping me from being in control and we start to bite and devour. Those are the tactics of the enemy who wants to rob you of experiential peace. Since he can't rob you of judicial peace, he wants to rob you of experiential peace. But we have to address it. We have to recognize it and we have to deal with it. Uh, Some of you know a little bit about history and maybe you know about General McClellan in the Civil War. General McClellan was regarded by his peers and his teachers at West Point as one of the most brilliant military strategists uh, that lived at that time. Everybody was impressed with his meticulous knowledge of war. and He had read all the books. He knew the art of war. He knew everything. And so he was a brilliant war strategist. But when he was put in charge of the Union Army, it often his knowledge and his meticulous thoughts and all the things he wanted to go through often uh, hindered the army from being successful and from winning victories because they would take too long and they would wait too long. And one particular instance in the Battle of Sharpsburg, uh, there are a couple of names for this battle, but there was, it was early on. It was in uh, 1862, the Battle of Sharpsburg. Um, the plans of the, of the Confederate Army, of Robert E. Lee, uh, fell into the hands of the Union Army. They brought it to McClellan. He saw it, and now for the first time he understood. He was totally perplexed by Lee and how Lee would move. But for the first time, he understood how Lee was operating, and he saw how he was segmented into five different divisions, and he saw exactly what Lee had planned to do and where they were going to attack. And so with this knowledge, he began to formulate a plan. But the problem was, in about 18 hours, Lee was going to be there. And it took him that full 18 hours. But by that time, Lee starts to suspect, and even though they are becoming somewhat successful, he didn't take advantage of the opportunity soon enough. And uh, basically, it's a, it's a stall. They both lose over 10,000 men, and it's basically a draw, basically a draw, where if he had moved sooner, he could have ended the war much sooner. He could have ended it there at Sharpsburg, but he didn't. He waited, and many of his advisors were telling him, we've got to move, we've got to march, we know where their weakness, we know where they're attacking, we can come around the back, and he waited too long, and he missed the opportunity, and Uh, Because of that, he eventually is let go by Lincoln and replaced by another general. You know, we can be that same way. We can have the information. We can have the knowledge and the understanding of how we need to fight our enemy. But if we don't enact it, if we say, you know, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to see. I'm not sure. I don't know if it's really that bad. I think I'm all right. We have to move. And how do we move? How do we make that move? How do we uh, defend ourselves? How do we overcome the evil of Satan? How do we come overcome this evil spirit that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy us, that works through the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of the heart? There's three things that we can do. It's the picture of the gospel. The first one is we confess. First John 1 John 1.9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. If we confess, He is faithful confession, saying, God, this is a struggle for me. God, I recognize the pride of my heart. I recognize uh, the pride of my eyes, the lust of my eyes. God, I recognize this. Forgive me. Give me strength. God, I cannot do it on my own. I need you. I confess this to you. 
I confess it'll only be by your power, by the power of the gospel that I can overcome. So Lord, I confess this before you and I will take whatever steps of accountability, whatever I need to do, Father, to deal with this. Secondly, give thanks. Give thanks that he is the God of the universe, that he holds all power. And because of the the gospel, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Give thanks to him. Give praise. Give worship. That's why it's so important that we come and we worship together. It empowers us, the spirit. It empowers one another. So we confess, we give thanks, and we repent. Remember repentance. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not just feeling bad. It's not just remorse. Most people just think it's remorse. It's, uh, I feel really badly about that. And if that's all you feel is remorse, you never, you never really do much about it. Very, that's a very unmotivating source, remorse. But repentance is this. is God, I see. I see you in a light. I see you in a new way. And God, I, I want to follow you. I want to confess. I want to give thanksgiving. And I want to overcome. So God, I'm going to recommit. I'm going to reorient. I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to start attempting to do it your way. I want to live in the shalom of the Lord, not in the consequences of sin. I want to live in your peace and in your fullness. I want to live the way you created me to live and what you created me to be. I want to live in shalom. So I confess. I give thanks. God, I repent. I turn to follow you. You know, um, my daughter often will have bad dreams. She had one last night. <clears throat> and when she has these bad dreams, she'll come to our room. And she actually comes to my wife's. And that's where I'd probably go too. But she comes to my wife. And um, she'll say, I had a bad dream. And Sal's and say, all right, come on up here. And then in just a few seconds, she'll be asleep. Why is that? Well, it's not that the bad dreams weren't real in her head. It's not that they don't exist. It's that she determined, you know what? I want to go into the presence of my mom because there's peace with my parents. And under their covering, I'm safe. And she falls right to sleep. It's not that those things will never come. It's not that they don't exist. It's the presence of her mother. That is the picture right there of Shalom. That's the picture of peace that we find in the presence of Christ. When we draw near, when we confess, when we give thanks and worship, and when we repent, and he brings us in to his presence, we are at peace. Doesn't mean we have everything we want. Doesn't mean we don't hurt. Doesn't mean there aren't conflicts. Doesn't mean things aren't going well. Doesn't mean we got all the money we need. It's not what it means. But we know that he possesses the power to redeem all things, that he is in control of all things and that he is our God. And we rest in that peace. Do you know the shalom of God? Do you know it judicially? Have you ever come to that place where you confessed your sin and recognized you were a sinner and asked Christ to come in and forgive you and made him Lord of your life? Maybe you're a believer and you're just struggling, especially at this season. Take a step back and confess to him. Worship and give him thanks and repent and begin again, anew in the strength and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you so much. 
God, if there's one here that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your Spirit today to know you, that today would be the day of salvation, the day of peace, the day of shalom. And Lord, for those believers who are struggling today, who are in turmoil and strife, Lord, as they confess that to you, as they worship and give you things and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have provided. Let me not get stuck on what I don't have. I want to give you thanks for what I do have and for what you have done, not for what you've not done. And God, last of all, Lord, let us repent and say, God, we choose to follow. We believe that you will redeem all things for your glory, for your good, for the body of Christ. And we put our hope in you and we rest in your peace and presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.